Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, beginning in the 6th chapter in the 28th verse. It can be located on page 49 of your pew Bibles. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. The New Testament reading is a responsive reading from the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, children, you can go to your classes. And I, I did not introduce her correctly. It's Dr. Judith Jacobson. And Dr. We return, uh, or we come this morning to the book of Exodus. There she is. Kimberly, I just spoke about you. Stan. And this is Kimberly Abernathy. This is the... This is, this is the Pied Piper of our children's ministry. I just talked to them about Wednesday night and how you need help. So the Lord brought you in here, not only to instruct Rick as to what he's supposed to be doing, but also so that people would know you, okay, and see you. Thank you. <clears throat> After we finished our study in the gospel according to Luke, uh, we began a systematic journey through Scripture. I won't try to explain it right now, but over the next year, year and a half, we will go to every book in Scripture, every book in the Bible, and spend either three weeks there or two weeks there. We've just finished being in the book of Acts, taking, you know, looking, and we're, we're trying to take chapters, verses, and events in each book of the Bible that will disclose the meat, the meaning of that entire book. We're like we've been looking, we looked at Pentecost. Unless you understand Pentecost, you can't understand the rest of the book of Acts. That's the key. Uh, well, we're going to look at Exodus for the next three weeks, beginning this morning. Uh, and we will be dealing with key passages, key places that will help you understand the book of Exodus. Before we come to Exodus 6, 28 through 7, 6, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Strange title, When God Goes to War. Instead of an introduction this morning, I want to come immediately to our first point. When God Goes to War. First, I want you to see in, in Exodus that God was at war with Egypt, with Pharaoh 
and with the gods of Egypt. You can look on your scripture sheet or Bibles and look at Exodus 7, 3. But I will harden. This is God speaking. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt. He will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Very simply in those verses, you may, may not have seemed like that to you, but God was declaring war on Egypt. Did Israel war against Egypt? No. Read these chapters. In fact, Israel complained when Moses first appeared on the scene and made entreaties to Pharaoh to, to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Israel complained and said, you're just making trouble for us. They were not thinking of rebellion. They were not thinking of escape. They were not thinking of exodus out of Egypt. This was God's idea. These were God's plagues. Why did God choose the unusual plagues of Exodus? The Nile to blood, frogs, lice, flies, disease, and livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. Why did he choose those plagues? There was a reason. Anytime you're reading scripture and you're dealing with God, there's always a reason for every detail. In Exodus 12, 12, we read this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. Now look at this. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Not all the people of Egypt, not on Pharaoh. He did that. But on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. He was saying, I'm God, not these other gods. And I'm bringing judgment on those gods. The Egyptians had a plethora of gods and goddesses. They had developed a theology that was vast with depth. God was embarrassing their gods and goddesses with these plagues. He was taking their theology to task. Hapai was the god of the Nile. They worshipped him daily. Egyptians worshipped him daily. God turned the Nile to blood to show that Hapai was powerless against the God of Israel. Hecht was the frog-headed goddess of Egypt. She was the goddess of the resurrection and procreation. Frogs were sacred and were not to be killed. God mocked their superstition. A plague of frogs came upon Egypt. They were everywhere, and Hecht was powerless. The third and fourth plagues were lice and, and flies. This was a, an attack on Kephi, represented by the scarab, who was the god of insects. The fifth plague was a disease which killed cattle and livestock. God was mocking their god Apis, the sacred bull of Egypt. He was a live bull with his own harem. 
When he died, another bull god was chosen. Undoubtedly, Apis died during this plague. He was powerless against the God of Israel. The sixth plague was boils. Himotep was a physician god of Egypt, but he could not heal the Egyptian of this disease, this plague that God sent. The seventh plague was hail, and Nut, the goddess of the sky, was helpless. It couldn't stop the hail. The eighth plague was locusts, which demonstrated that the Egyptian god of crops, Nepri, could not protect the agriculture of Egypt. The ninth plague was darkness. And this took on one of the gods at the, the height of the Egyptian pantheon, Ra. Ra was a sun god, but there was this darkness that could not be explained over the land. And Ra could do nothing. And then the tenth plague attacked Pharaoh himself. The tenth plague of the death of the firstborn was aimed at Pharaoh, who was considered to be a god. He was part of the pantheon. He was the current protector of Egypt, but he couldn't even protect his own household. His firstborn died in that plague. What did God say? I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. God was at war with Egypt. He was at war with the gods of Egypt. When God goes to war, that's a title that grinds against the grain of our idea of what kind of God we think of God being gracious, kind, benevolent. God's a God of peace. God doesn't wage war, does he? When Israel looked back on the plagues, when the exodus had taken place, they came across the Red Sea. God protected them, provided a path through the Red Sea. And when the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world at that time tried to go through. He destroyed them. Do you know what Israel said? You know what Israel did? They saw this. They saw this great army. They had been slaves just days, months, weeks before. And saw this great army completely devastated. Do you know what they sang? Read it this afternoon. It's in Exodus 15. It's a song that they wrote and sang on the banks of the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, 3, we read, The Lord, that is their God, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You see this all through Scripture. It's ignored by many churches, many ministers today. Look at 2 Samuel 5, 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The Lord's gone out before you to do this. Look at Jeremiah 21.5. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hands, with strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. God is saying that. Let me read that again to you. You know what's happening in this? Babylon is at the gates. This is from Jeremiah. Babylon's at the gates of Jerusalem. And Zedekiah calls on Jeremiah and he said, go speak to God. Get a word from God. It may be that he will save us from the Babylonians. 
You know what Jeremiah comes back and tells Zedekiah? Zedekiah, God said to tell you, you shouldn't worry about the Babylonians. Who do you think brought the Babylonians to your city? You're in a war with me, Zedekiah. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hands and strong arm and anger and in fury and in great wrath. Read the Bible. This is what you see. In the Old Testament, God warred against Egypt, the Canaanites, Babylon, and even Israel when they became corrupt. But you know what we say? We say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The people in the Old Testament had this warped view about God. I'm so sick of hearing that. Don't say that. Please don't say that. And if you do say that, don't tell people you go to Christ Presbyterian Church. Because all you're doing, when you say, remember this, because you will hear it again. You'll hear it. Oh, it's the God of the Old Testament does that. I've heard ministers that have been to seminary say that. And all they say when they do that, they're just holding up a sign. I know totally nothing about Scripture. That's all they're doing. And that's all you're doing. You're making an idiot of yourself when you do that. So stop. Let me read one passage. We read it this morning. We read it this morning in our bulletin for responsive reading. We're going to do it again, not responsive reading. But I'm going to read it to you. Listen to it. Revelation. This is the New Testament, by the way. This is the New Testament. This is Jesus right here. You're about, you're about to read about him, a, glorif- a, a, a transcendent, risen, reigning Jesus. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's talking about Jesus, people. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of almighty God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. One cannot escape the reality. The God of the Bible is indeed a God of grace. But he's also a God of war. That must be a chief lesson for today. But another lesson of the day must be that the truth that he's a God of war is a wonderful and good truth. I want us to look at this God who warred against Egypt and understand why it's good. Why, it's a wonderful truth that he did so. But we begin with God was at war against Egypt, Pharaoh, and the other gods of Egypt. Secondly, I want you to see that God was independent in his war against Egypt. Look at Exodus again, 7-3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. In other episodes in Scripture, this God of war, uses other nations, other armies, enemy armies, to come against, in judgment, other nations. For instance, he brought Babylon against Israel in the Old Testament when Israel became corrupt. But with Egypt, 
With Egypt, he didn't bring another nation. With Egypt, he did not allow Israel to raise a spear. Israel did not raise a spear, did not use a sword or even a shield. God used all of his own forces of creation in this war with Egypt. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is one of the great, great preachers that God has given his church. In the last part of the 19th century, first part of the 20th century, he preached in London. They never built a place large enough to hold the crowds that would come hear him preach. He was a great, great, great preacher. I've learned much from him. There is a, a devotion that's been put together. It's a classic devotion. It's been out for years. It's called Morning and Evening. And it's taken from the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. There's a morning devotional for every day and an evening devotional for every day. Every house in our church ought to have one of these. It's called Morning and Evening. You can get them on our book table. There's only two left right now. Uh, it comes in big, larger book form. This is an easy book form. But on the evening of July 24th, he does a devotional on Joel 2.11. Joel 2.11 reads, his camp is very great. God's camp is very great. You know, the, the, he, he's picturing the camp of an army and said the camp of God's army is very great. This is so good that I had it put on the scripture sheet this morning. And so it's there on your scripture sheet, and I'm going to read it, and you follow along as I read it. This is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Consider, my soul, the mightiness of the Lord, who is thy glory and defense. He is a man of war. Jehovah is his name. All the forces of heaven are at his back. Legions wait at his door. Cherubim and seraphim, watchers and holy ones, principalities and powers, all are attentive to his will. If our eyes were not blinded by the ophthalmia of the flesh, we should see horses of fire and chariots of fire around the Lord's beloved. Now, watch this. The powers of nature are all subject to the absolute control of the Creator. Stormy wind and tempest, lightning and hail, snow and hail, or lightning and rain, snow and hail, and the soft dews and cheering sunshine. Come and go at his decree. The bands of Orion he looses and, the, and binds the sweet influences of the Pleiades. Earth, sea, and air, and the places under the earth are the barracks for Jehovah's great armies. Space is his camping ground. Light is his banner and flame is his sword. When he goes forth to war, famine ravages the land. Pestilence smite the nations. Hurricane sweeps the sea. Tornado shakes the mountains and earthquake makes a solid world to tremble. As for animate creatures, they all own his dominion. And from the great fish which swallowed up the prophet down to all manner of flies which plagued the fields of Zoan, all are his servants. And like the palmer worm, caterpillar, the canker worm, are squadrons of his great army, for his camp is very great. My soul, see to it that thou be at peace with this mighty king. Yea, more be sure to enlist under his banner. For to war against him is madness, and to serve him is glory. In 1998, two disaster movies about an asteroid and a comet on a collision course with, this, with, with Earth premiered. In 1998, Armageddon and Deep Impact. These movies really shook our culture in many ways. They were impressive somewhat. They were impressive 
and somewhat scientific in their depictions. They were silly and inane in other ways. But we should be shaken by those films. The earth was about to be destroyed by a comet in one movie, by an asteroid in another. We should be shaken. However, there are no rogue asteroids or comets from deep space. You say, oh, yes, there is. No, they're not. They're not rogue. Each one is on a course designed by God himself. It's not random. We have a God that has battalions that includes creatures from ants to whales, who has battalions that include tidal waves and hurricanes, who has battalions that include meteors and suns, who has battalions that include disease and viruses, who has battalions that include flood and drought. When the Iron Curtain fell, was a friend of mine, he was a minister, and we were talking about it. He said, well, you know, one good thing comes out of this. He said, I always thought that God would use Russia to judge us as a nation. He said, but now we're the lone superpower in the world. We don't have to worry about that. And I laugh. And you know how you sometimes think, I wish I'd have said this? Well, I had the perfect thing you can say to him. I laughed and put my hand on his shoulder and said, you know, the Egyptians in Exodus thought the same thing. They really did. We don't have to fear another superpower. We're the most powerful nation in the world. But then God went to war with Egypt. And they had to deal with lice and flies, and frogs, darkness, pestilence. God was at war with Egypt. Pharaoh and the other gods of Egypt. God was independent in his war against Egypt. No one else fought. Three, I want you to say, see that God was just in his war against Egypt. Look at verse four. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. By great acts of, what's that last word? Judgment. For years I had a Sunday school mentality when I was young about this episode. I thought God, with all these plagues, was just delivering Israel. And God said, this is the only way to get Israel out. And that he just did this to Egypt to set his people free. And that, that and certainly, he set his people free. He brought them out. But he was also bringing Egypt into the courtroom of his judgment. If Israel had not been in Egypt, God would have still judged their nation. It was time. It was time. They had been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God was not an arbitrary. He was not a tyrant God who got up out of Bed that morning mad at Egypt. He had foretold this 400 years before. In Genesis 15, 13, if you look on your scripture sheet, 
or in your Bibles, Genesis 15, 13. 400 years earlier than this, God was speaking to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, with great spoils. Egypt had been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Here's the key. God, you want to understand this? God was, is, and forever will be at war with sin. That's called justice. There's a side of me that wants that God, a God who is just. I want to live in a land where courts deal with the evils of society. I want to live in a land under a government that does not let robbers and thieves and murderers and embezzlers and rapists and arsonists go free. Do we want justice in our land? Of course we do. Do we not love our courts, our justice? Yes. Well, in every war, God fights in Scripture is a war of justice. Against sin. I want that. Would you want to live in Venezuela today? Where justice doesn't exist. Where your life would be in constant danger. Your children's lives would be in constant danger. But you know there's a side of me that doesn't want that God. I don't want that God because... I know that I'm a sinner. If the explanation is that God was and is and forever will be at war with sin, and that's why we see the judgment, then sooner or later he's got to get around to me. I cheer. You know, I cheer for what God did in Egypt. Should not Hitler and Stalin and Mao, should they not come into judgment? Should they just be set free? These men that killed, between them, that killed well over a hundred million people, slaughtered them. If I had a chance, I would pull the trigger on those men myself. Then God comes to me in his word and says, John, you know you're more like them than you are like me. You say, oh, John, that's an exaggeration. No, it's not an exaggeration. When I was a kid, you know, when I was 11 years old in the fifth grade, in my imagination, I killed my fifth grade teacher every day. I really did. And members of my own family, when I was that age, I would have put them in jail if I could have. God is waging war against sin in this world, and I'm one of those sinners. 
You know that judgment that fell on Egypt? When Israel became guilty, became corrupt of the same sins of which Egypt had committed, the corruption it had saturated, when Israel as a nation became that, God's own people, when they became that, the judgment that God brought on Egypt, he brought on his own people. He brought on Israel. Look at Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9. And I would encourage you this afternoon. I bet you've never read Ezekiel 7 before. Go home and read it today. This was God's judgment. We read in Exodus God's judgment on Egypt. Read about his judgment in the seventh chapter on Israel. Listen to these verses, verses 8 and 9 of Ezekiel 7. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abomination. And my eyes will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. God was speaking to Israel when he said that. That's how he spoke to Egypt. And then he called what was doing. He was warring against sin. But then what's really sobering? When Jesus, his own son, became sin, when our sin fell on him, God sent far more than ten plagues against his own son. He sent him to hell. It's sobering. God was at war against Egypt and Pharaoh and the other gods. God was independent in his war against Egypt. God was just in his war against Egypt. Finally, God was being gracious, also being gracious in his war against Egypt. In verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. You see, the same God that was destroying Egypt was saving Israel. There was judgment taking place. There was salvation taking place in the same scene, in the same place. There it is, folks. God is either a God with whom we're at war, a judging and consuming fire, or he's a salvation. He's a refuge, a fortress, a shield, a hiding place. You know what? Unless you see him as one, you cannot see him as the other. Why do people, why do people not run to that cross? Why do people not run to be saved? Because they think it's where our country is today because there's nothing from which they need to be saved. There's no fear of God before their eyes. People, God, understand it this way. God hates the sin that is in us like a, 
like a mother hates the disease that is destroying her child's life. God hates the sin that is in us like the mother hates the man that has abducted her child. Sin has ruined his creation and he's at war with that sin. One day. What we're reading about is Jesus went forth from glory. The great final battle. One day there'll be no more sin. That war will be over. Either you will stand before this God in all of your sin. Or you will stand before God dressed in Christ. Hiding in Christ. The God of war and of grace in Exodus is the same God we find in the book of Revelation. We've not described two gods this morning. We've described one God. The question is not whether God is a God of war or a God of grace. He's both. The question is whether you continue to war against him or have surrendered. What was it Spurgeon wrote? My soul, see to it that thou be at peace with this mighty king. Yea, more. Be sure to enlist under his banner, for a war against him is madness. But to serve him is glory. Amen. And we sang two great hymns this morning. In keeping with this theme, a mighty fortress is our God. And the first hymn that we sang was a glorious hymn written by Martin Luther, speaking about God's war with Satan and how he is a mighty fortress for his people. And then that great hymn of grace, that, that great hymn that we sang after our confession, how firm a foundation. You saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. We're going to close by declaring where we stand in our hiding place. In Christ alone.